0: Hi
1: folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 2nd, 2017, this episode 2090 of the Survival Podcast. And it's me. I'm back from my adventures, which ended up this time being uh, the mountains of North Carolina, specifically the Asheville, North Carolina area. We had a lot of fun there. I posted a lot of stuff on Facebook. A little bit more than halfway through, I kind of gave up, you know, where we were. Uh, I generally don't tell people where we're going on vacation because everybody wants you to come see them. And uh, then I have to tell you no, and I am going to tell you no, and I'm going to tell you no quite sternly because it's my wife's time to have me to herself. Uh, so that's why I do that to avoid. <laughs> Telling people no. I had a couple of people like, why don't you stop by you know, Memphis on the way home? Well, I'm going to be about 32,000 feet drinking a Bloody Mary, so I don't think the pilot's going to swing by Memphis. But, yeah, that's how we do our vacations, on a big old jet plane. Uh, I enjoyed my time in Asheville. We went to a lot of cool places. We went to the Biltmore State. I went to the North Carolina Arboretum. We did a bunch of hiking, did some driving on the Blue Ridge Parkway. It was great. The weather wasn't quite what I wanted. It was uh, it was humid and, and and a little bit too warm for this time of year. Honestly, uh, with the humidity kicked in on it, and that makes hiking a bit difficult for my wife because she dehydrates easily. So we had to keep that you know somewhat scaled down. Um, having now been to the Asheville area, North Carolina, and the Gatlinburg area of te- uh, Tennessee. Uh, and those two kind of competing tourist markets. I have to say, if I if I'm going back to one of them, it'll be Gatlinburg. Nothing against Asheville, just Gatlinburg had more accessibility to a lot of really great hikes, bit better weather, and a lot easier to just kind of walk around. Where Asheville, like I didn't really want to stay downtown Asheville. And they have a, a saying in Asheville that's very much what we have in Texas about Austin. They keep Austin weird keep Asheville, Asheville weird, and uh, there, there's no danger in that changing. So overall, nice place, cool stuff, but I think I've seen most of what I need to see, and uh, if we head up that way, yeah, it'll probably be Gatlinburg uh, in the future. We're supposed to be in Sanibel, Florida, and we made a, a, a calculated guess as best we could with the hurricane impact and having a short time to reschedule the vacation. And uh, Anyway, it worked out. I'm glad to be back with you guys. It is October. That means October, November, December. We have officially entered Q4, or quarter four, of the year 2017. You know what that means. Tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. Time is moving forward. I hope you've been working on improving your independence and liberty while I've been gone. I hope our Rewind shows helped you do that. But We are back once again, recording on the day of release. And uh, it's almost live, right? Uh, Almost live recording. And uh, today we have a bunch of stuff to talk about, listener feedback show. Uh, Today we're going to talk about the Las Vegas shooting. I'm only going to have a few words for now, but some things that I fear will actually come from this and it's probably not what you're thinking of right now. Uh, Consideration for buying a manufactured home is is your first step into the, the real estate world. Uh You remember how I used to talk about the ticking time bomb of the pensions and unfunded liabilities a lot? And I haven't talked about it as much in the past few years. If you think it went away, it hasn't. I just got tired of beating on that drum. And we're going to talk about it a little bit more today because some things are starting to come home roost, so to say. We have another way for cryptocurrency to disrupt media and the powers that be. And it looks like Dubai... Will be the first nation to launch a state-backed cryptocurrency, and I have thoughts on the violence by the state over the Catalonia independence voting. What is that? You say Catalonia? What? Huh? But but everybody's mad about the NFL players, and then others are shooting in Vegas, and Catalonia. It's actually a bigger story than either one of those. Not to not to in any way uh, take away from the lives lost with this shooting, but when it comes to its impact on the world, it's, it's a bigger story than the TV would ever tell you that it is, and I'll tell you why. And uh, there's a simple question here at the end, what to do with herbs and plants as winter arrives. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. They have a goal at Western Botanicals to put their product in every house in America. No, that's 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 not actually their goal. That would be kind of a very self-serving goal. No, their goal is a much bigger goal. They're they're people that really believe in a mission-oriented philosophy. Their goal is to put an herbalist in every house in America so that every house has one person who's at least switched on to the ways of herbs so that they can use herbs for healing in their family. And then, you know, if they do that, they'll probably be a pretty big market, and some of them will probably buy herbs from Western Botanicals. That's the way these people think. Real people that really care about you, you can pick up the phone and give them a call. If you have any questions, you can check out their awesome website at westernbotanicals.com. And if you are an MSB member, make sure you get your free premium membership that sells for $50 a year. You get your first year for free from them, and if you decide you want to keep it and keep renewing with it, they cut the price in half to 25 bucks. You can learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine. You know, we are in quarter four, and very, very soon, I guess, I'll see the last edition of Backwoods Home Magazine, and it will be a more than 20-year journey for me of having received and read, I wouldn't say cover-to-cover, but read substantially every episode of Backwoods Home Magazine that came out from about the fall of 1993 until the ends of this year in December of 2017 i don't know that i can get emotional over a magazine but it is something that's been a part of my life and when dave duffy contacted me and said that they were ceasing printing of backwoods home magazine at the end of this year it was like you know a a, a chapter finishing And I was so glad by that time that they had already started with Self-Reliance magazine, very much focused on the electronic side, going to a quarterly, going deeper into subjects, leaving all politics out of it, really. It's just a fantastic evolution. And I don't really think I'm saying goodbye to Backwoods Home. I think we're just seeing it evolve into Self-Reliance Magazine. If you want the publication that will take you forward in this new world, but not forget where it came from, check out Self-Reliance Magazine to learn more about that. And remember, you can get a discount on it through the Member Support Brigade. Next up, let's go ahead and uh, remind you guys real quick about that Members Support Brigade. If you guys want to help support this show, the easiest way to do that is become a member of my MSB Some people, for some reason, people always call it the MSP. I think that's a manufacturer's number or something like that. The MSB, the Member Support Brigade. Um, The MSB is the way you can say, "Hey, look, I think this time that Jack spends every day putting this information out is worth something to me, and I think it's worth at least twenty cents an episode because it comes out to like eighteen point three cents if you do the math." And so I'm going to back him at that fifty dollars a year, and but in return I'm going to get discounts on so much stuff. That I'm going to get my money back and more. It's a pretty win-win situation. So if you love the show and the work that we do, you want us to always be here, uh, you want us to remain that chapter in your life, or you know as long as uh, self uh, or backwards home remain in mind, consider joining the MSB because that's how we're going to make that happen. And I remind you, thanks to you guys, we are in our ninth year now here at the Survival Podcast. Going into June of next year, it'll be ten years, a decade of TSP, and I wanted to just take a moment, coming back from vacation, being all refreshed, and say thank you uh, for supporting me, my work, and my family for almost a decade now. All right, so let's get into um, what's going on out there. I-, I got quite a few emails about the Vegas shooting. Obviously, this happened, you know, last night, and this is what everybody woke up to today. And, and I'm not really going to respond to anybody's individual. Emails on this, or feature them on the air. I'm not going to re- reference any articles or anything like that, because even though I, I put Fox News on today to my own detriment, I guess this morning and, and this was the thing that greeted me, and I, I forgot about the TV and I left it running, and I went out and I looked at it hours later, and they were saying the same thing. So if you've been under a rock somewhere and you don't know what happened in, in, in Las Vegas, this is what they know as of right now. A man named uh, Stephen Paddock has yet to be determined why went into uh, a hotel room overlooking a Jason Aldean concert and opened fire with multiple weapons, as many as 10 weapons reported in his uh, room uh, when he was eventually taken out. Uh, He opened fire for a very long period of time, wounding more than 400 people and killing more than 50. Uh, There are reports that that, uh, Stephen Paddock had converted to Islam, And those reports are completely unsubstantiated at this point. We don't know one way or another. And there's also uh, reports that he was a big-time gambler-type person. We don't really know anything about him yet, and we don't really know anything more than I've just told you, in spite of the fact that TV's been running nonstop, wall-to-wall coverage of this thing over and over again. People were hurt. People were afraid. People ran. People helped each other. That's that's what we know right now, and, and, and the media is attempting to make it a bigger story than that. But I'm already hearing the narrative flush out as to where this is going. And again, no disrespect to anybody that was hurt or killed or anybody that lost anybody when I talk about where this is headed. Uh, I don't bend these things for political means. It's not what I do, but I do evaluate what they mean for us going forward. Of course, the left... Uh, led by uh, Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton, right, Hillary, uh has already come out screaming for more gun control and the NRA wants silencers and this could have been worse and blah, 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 blah. And I'm sure that's what everybody that is pro-liberty is concerned will come from this. You know, right now we should just be focusing on the people that were injured and hurt and killed and the people that have lost somebody and not playing politics with this. But even people that feel that way know that's where this will probably go. However, we do not have the Democrats in power, and most of the Republicans that are making up the majority are either pro-gun or they have to pretend to be pro-gun and and can't really get away with not pretending to be pro-gun. So you're not going to see any major gun control legislation come out of this. It's it's not. It may steer some narrative around the midterm elections, but... The mind of Americans is short, and if you're going to use a crisis to your own end, you have to use it quickly. Okay, So who's in power, and what do they want, and how might this crisis benefit them? Well, the Republicans are in charge, and what they want is a larger police state. And there's where you're going to go with this. I'm not going to guess about why this guy did this. I'm not going to guess if he has ties to Islam. I am going to tell you that even though it hasn't come out yet, if they say, well, the FBI had interviewed this guy two times or something like that in the past, I won't be surprised, but I'm not predicting it. But it's, 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 it's as plausible as anything else. But I'm not going to guess on any of that crap because we just don't know right now. Some nut job shot a bunch of people. That's what happened. But what we're going to do about it, <laughs> the narrative's already coming out. You know, how could we possibly have um, secret service level protections in these large outdoor venues is one of the terms that I heard used today. That like to stop a guy like this, you need counter snipers and things like that. It's not really practical. I think what you're going to see is justification for expanding the police state around this. Not directly in the realm of gun control, however, of course, down the road, as the left boot steps or the right boot steps on your neck at this point and advances the football, when the pendulum swings, uh, swings it is possible the left might be able to use those things to justify or encourage or uh, improve their odds at forcing greater gun control. But right now, that's what you're going to see is the advancing of the police state. Um, I, I don't think it, like, I, I'm sure. We're about four hours from 500 YouTube videos calling this thing false flag. I highly doubt that that's the case here. Uh, I don't think we have crisis actors in this. I think this is a legitimate tragedy, um, and I think it's horrible, and I think it's it's probably the largest number of people killed in a mass shooting in America. That's what I've heard claimed anyway, um, and it is what it is. But I I think one of the things that Americans are very easily led to believe is that something even this tragic is more significant than it is. And I know that sounds heartless, and I don't mean to sound heartless. Again, I feel for these people. But it will not be something that alters the country unless we allow it to be, and that is where we will be led. Because when, when when someone says to me, like, well, with something like this happening, wouldn't you agree that there's a, a greater need, let's say, for gun control? No. No, I wouldn't. Well, if it was one of your family members that died there, what would you think? Well, right now I would be busy grieving, and I would think you were a miserable piece of shit for politicizing my grief. That's what I would think. However, once the smoke cleared, what I would still think is taking away the rights of another individual who's law-abiding will not prevent people who are evil from doing evil. So I'm not going to justify taking away rights of men because other men abuse their rights by abusing the rights of others. Because then we have no rights left. But anyway, that's all I have on it for today. And as we know more, maybe I'll have greater opinion, but that's where this is headed. This is headed for a greater encroachment upon individual rights through the advancement of the police state, uh, more so than gun control in the next year or two let 's uh take a blah 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 let 's take a look at another uh, bit of feedback from you guys for this week okay so the uh, the the next question I have comes from who does it come from Ryan or ryan i 'm not sure how you say the way i 've never seen ryan spelled r i o n but i guess it 's ryan um He wants to know about mobile homes, and I do have some experience having lived in mobile homes and um, looked at quite a few as potential purchases and went through the numbers and things like that with them. So I'll do what I best I can here. Um, What do I need to check out when looking at a manufactured home as a potential first home purchase? Details. My wife and I are looking to purchase property. The piece that we have put at the top of our list has a manufactured house on it. There are signs of neglect, but the house doesn't seem to be in disrepair from the outside. I am an electrician, so I have the electrical covered. The plumbing will be checked out by my brother-in-law, but the rest of the house will be up to me to inspect. The property is just over five acres, gently sloping to mostly flat. The entire property has been grazed to dirt by horses. Small area of trees and brushes on the north side blocking the view of the neighbors, and there is what appears to be a swampy area in the backyard that will need to be addressed. Uh, there's a well and a septic system I will have inspected by pros. I'm looking forward to hearing your input on the show. Ryan, easy, Charlie, easy. It's just a question. We'll, we'll get it done together. That's Charlie. He's upset about this one. Anyway, Ryan, um, you say that the rest of the house will be up to me to inspect, and I'm going to stop you right there and say that I do not think that's a good idea. Uh, I would have a, a, a qualified home inspector go over this property tip to tail. And I'm wondering why you wouldn't be doing that in the first place. It is Generally speaking, both an inspection and an appraisal is generally required uh, to finance a property. So I'm wondering if you're buying this thing for cash. And if you're buying it for cash, that means you're going all in, you're going to pay for it, you're going to own it, it's going to be yours, and uh, you're taking 100% of liability. And so that may mean you don't need an inspection and you don't need an appraisal because you don't need it to get the money. But if the bank wants it before they give you the money, maybe you should want it before you spend the money. Now, I understand that you might be in certain real estate markets that are heating up right now where if you take that approach, you may lose the opportunity to buy the property and you may have to do the inspections yourself. If that's the case, fine, so be it. One of the things that would have really helped me is if you would have told me the manufacturer of the home. And one of the things I'm going to suggest that you do is you check out the manufacturer. So is it Champion? Is it Solitaire? What have you? And what their reputation is, and how their their um, mobile homes tend to do on the the secondary market for resale and you know any unique uh, construction features that they have or don't have, the what year the, the, the home was manufactured, and what the price of that home was at its time of manufacture. Uh, these are all things that will help you determine whether or not you think you're getting a reasonable value. Overall, I think if you're going to buy land in a mobile home, that you almost always come out ahead by buying it from somebody else, and the person that buys the land and puts the mobile home on it almost always, not always, but almost always loses. Uh, Because it's a very expensive proposition to do things like install a well and accept it, get the place delivered, get the area prepared, etc. And manufactured homes tend to actually do something opposite of conventional homes, which is they do tend to depreciate. Now, that doesn't mean that your property will always be less over time with a manufactured home. That means that the building itself will tend to depreciate, and then it will level off in that depreciation, depending on how it's maintained. If it's well maintained and it's in good shape, it will drop a little bit, it will stop, and it may even begin to slightly appreciate again over time. But generally, the Numbers will work out to your advantage as a property owner if you maintain it well and maintain the property well because the total value of the land and, and, the, and the home together will continue to appreciate. But by letting somebody else do the initial installation and, and initial purchase, you usually end up a little bit ahead, and they usually end up losing some money and taking it in the shorts. That doesn't mean they won't get any money during the sale. It means that money was lost. It was, a, it was an investment that they – it's what you call sunken capital. Uh, down payments and things like that that people generally write off in their head money spent and gone and there's no way that you're ever going to get it back so you stop worrying about it. Some of the most important things that I would check underneath of the structure is is there any sagging to the exterior walls if I had my druthers and I was going to buy a brand new mobile home and I'm not saying no others do this but there's only one I know of that does the brand that I would look to is a brand called Solitaire and the reason I like solitaire homes, in addition to the outstanding construction that's done to them—two uh, by sixes in the walls, the interior drywalled instead of that laminate crap—you know, top-end uh, building materials used throughout, and very nice fit and finish—is the frame, the metal frame on a solitaire, the 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 horizontal. So you get your two. Vertical i beams running the length of the uh, of the each side of the mobile home, and then you have these like fins or horizontal beams that come out. If you look at most mobile homes, you'll notice that that steel stops somewhere between six to twelve inches short of the exterior outside wall, and that means that there isn't you know it's because there's enough support in the subfloor that that's okay. However, what it does mean is that your exterior wall is exerting force outside of the steel uh, platform. Now, my home was a Champion in Arkansas, and it had that, and it was fine. But again, I'm back to if I was buying a brand new one, or if I'm comparing two, if you look at a Solitaire, that steel beam goes all the way to the end of the wall. Another thing that you want to check, and you want to be sure that the installation on this was done as such that it can appraise as real estate. If you can appraise as real estate, a person can go in and get an FHA loan. A person can go in and get a VA loan. A person can go in and get a conventional loan and finance the property. If you're buying it cash, are you buying cash because you want to or because financing cannot be obtained on it? Unless your plan eventually is to move it, sell it, whatever, and site build, I would not buy a mobile home on property that cannot be appraised as real estate. If it cannot be appraised as real estate, it limits the number of people that I can sell it to. This has to do with how it's attached to the foundation, etc., and some other stuff, that if you have a qualified home inspection done, which any lender is going to require, they're going to make sure that that indeed is the case. In our instance, in Arkansas, we were even told by real estate agents, it won't appraise as real estate. Well, it did when we bought it. I'm, I'm, I'm saying the average real estate agent is an idiot. I mean, they're absolute asshole idiots out there is with real estate licenses. Well, the lady that ended up even selling the place—we because got tired of talking to people and like, I'm gonna sell. I'm not worried about it. Just put it out. Let's go. Yeah, you know, so she said, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. praises real estate. Did when we bought it? Well, I don't know. So she brought her husband up to look at it. He said he thinks it will. Uh, so you get a qualified home inspector. And they tell you that, and you know, again, if you're financing it, you're going to have to do that anyway. I believe that the roughly four to $600 you pay a certified home inspector to do a tip-to-tail inspection on any property is well worth the money spent and inevitably will lead you to discovery of issues you would not have known about. In general, those issues will allow you to negotiate money off the price of the property, sometimes even in a market where things are pretty hot because they're never going to be that hot around a mobile home. So that's kind of the direction that I want to steer you there. Yeah, you, you know, you say you've got the electrical covered. That's good. Plumbing, you know, it either works or it doesn't. In, in manufactured housing, it's probably not that old of a home, so there's no not going to be any lead pipes in there or anything like that. But, uh, you know, the roof is a place a lot of manufactured home uh, companies kind of skimp. They put the cheapest shingles they can on a roof. So if it's you know more than five years old, get a good walk around on the roof. Uh, check if there's gutters installed, if they were done right. You don't have water running places. Again, I just think the best advice I can give you is get a certified inspector out there to inspect a tip to tail. Hope that helps you. Let's take another one. This one comes in from Gary. Gary says, Jack, I thought you might like to see some projections on unfunded liabilities for state pension funds. Glad my eggs are not in that basket. Gary from Northwest Florida. And he has an article that's on Flipboard, and it's called Americans don't grasp the magnitude of a looming pension tsunami that may hit us within 10 years. Let me read a little bit of this to you. The article is titled Americans Don't Grasp the Magnitude of the Looming Pension Tsunami that May Hit Us Within Ten Years Total Unfunded Liabilities in State and Local Pensions have Roughly Quintupled in the last decade Muldron Economics via the Federal Reserve and Bloomberg you read that right, not doubled, tripled or quadrupled, but quintupled that's nice when it happens on a slot machine not so nice when it's money that you owe you'll also notice in the chart that much of the change happened in 2008 why was that? That's when the Fed took interest rates down to near zero, meaning it suddenly took more cash to fund future payments. According to a 2014 Pew study, only 15 states follow policies that have funded at least 100% of their pensions needs. And that estimate is based on the aggressive assumptions of pension funds that they will get their predicted rate of return of the discount rate. So let me stop and explain what that means there. That means that 15 of 50 states, with their pension funds, say that their their funds are fully funded for the future? 15 of 50. Now, you don't have to be a new math or what do you call them, a core math student to figure out. That means 35 ain't. All right. But that, what, what it also means, though, is of those 15, they're assuming a rate of return on the money in their funds, and if they don't make that rate of return, they're also not fully funded. All right, just to decrypt it a little bit. Kentucky for instance has unfunded pension liabilities of 40 billion or more. This month the state budget director notified local governments the pensions could cost could jump 50 the, the pension costs could jump 50 to 60% next year. That's due to a proposed reduction in the system's assumed rate of return of 7.5% to 6 and a quarter, a step in the right direction but not nearly enough. Think about this as an investor. How can you guarantee a six to seven percent return these days? Do you know you way to guarantee yourself even a six and a quarter average annual return for the next 10 or 20 years? Of course you don't. Yes, some strategies have a good shot at doing it, but there's no guarantee. And if you believe Jeremy Graytham's seven-year forecast, I do his 2009 growth forecast was spot on, then those pension funds will have little hope of getting their average 7% predicted rate of return at least for the next seven years. GMO via Malden Economics now here is the truth about pension liabilities. Let's assume you have 1 billion in funding today. If you assume a 7% compound return, about the average for most pension funds, then it means in 30 years that 1 million will have grown to 8 billion approximately. Now, what if we what if it's a 4% return using the rule of 72, which is how often money doubles based on the interest rate. Uh the 1 billion grows to around 3.1 billion grows to around 3.5 billion or less than half of the future assets in 30 years if you assume 7%. Remember that every dollar that is not funded today means that somewhere between $4 and $8 will not be there in 30 years when somebody who is on the pension is expecting to get it. Let me read that again, because you hear these pension shortfalls in today's numbers when you hear about places like Chicago, okay? But you, you, what you're not seeing is the long term. So let me read that little paragraph to you again. Remember that every dollar that is not funded today means that somewhere between 4 and $8 will not be there in 30 years when somebody who's on a pension is expecting to get it. Worse, without proper funding, as the fund starts going negative, the funding ratio actually gets worse, sending it into a death spiral. The only way to bring it out of the spiral is is huge cuts to other needed services or massive tax cuts to pension benefits. The situation is dire even in the best-case scenarios. But what if the state of Kentucky unusually frank report regarding the state's public pension liability sums up the state's plight in one chart? State of Kentucky via Maldwin Economics, the news for Kentucky retirees is quite dire, especially considering what returns on investments are realistically likely to be. But there's a make or break point somewhere. What if the pension plans must either hit 6% average annual return for 2018 to 2028 or declare bankruptcy and lose it all? That's a much greater problem, and it's a rough equivalent to what state pension trustees have to do. Failing to generate the target returns doesn't reduce the liability. It just means taxpayers must make up the difference. But wait, it gets worse. The graph we showed earlier stated that unfunded pension liabilities for state and local governments were $2 trillion. Get that? $2 trillion. That's more than people paying individual federal income taxes in a year, $2 trillion. But that assumes an average 7% compound return. What if we assume a 4% compound return? Now the admitted unfunded pension liability is $4 trillion. So best case scenario, to $2 trillion short, not going completely negative, just only being able to get 4% return, they're $4 trillion short. But what if we have a recession, the stock market goes down by the past average more than 40 percent. Now you have an unfunded liability in the seven to eight trillion dollar range. Rethrow the words a trillion dollars around a lot, not realizing how much that actually is. Combined state and local revenues for the U.S. total around 2.6 trillion. After the next recession, whatever that is, the unfunded pension liabilities for state and local governments will be roughly three times the revenue they are collecting today. And that's before a recession reduces their revenues. Can you see the taxpayer stuck between a rock and a hard place? Two immovable objects meeting. The math just doesn't work. We're starting to see cities filing for bankruptcy. The small ripple will be a tsunami within seven to ten years. It goes beyond a financial crisis, it's social and political catastrophe. Many state and local governments have 100% funded their pension plans. Some state and local governments have overfunded them. What that really means is that the unfunded liabilities are more concentrated and they show up in unlikely places. You think Texas, where Jack lives, is doing well? Look at some of our cities and weep. Look, too, at other seemingly semi-prosperous cities all over the country. Do you think the suburbs of Dallas will want their taxes increased to help out the city? If you do, I may have a bridge to sell you, unless you'd rather have an oceanfront property in Arizona. The issue is going to set neighbor against neighbor, retirees against taxpayers. It will become one of the most heated battles of our lifetime. It will make the Trump-Clinton campaigns look like school kids tiddlywinks smackdown. Well, it's kind of how it looked to me when it was going on. I was heavily involved in politics at both the national and local levels in the 80s and 90s, much of the 2000s. Trust me, local politics is far nastier and more vicious. I agree with that 100%, by the way. And there's nothing more local than police and firefighters and teachers seeing their pensions cut because the money isn't there. Tax increases of up to 100% are going to become commonplace. But even these new revenues won't be enough because we'll be acting with too little too late. You can read the rest of this if you want to. There's a little bit more to it. But you get the point. Like, when you just run the numbers and do the math, most of these pensions, the math doesn't work out over 10, 15, 20 years. It just doesn't. You're waiting for some kind of savior moment to happen, some massive return to uh, being able to make good returns in safe ways. See, what this is doing, and understand this is by design. This is by design. It's forcing money into riskier positions than that money has any business being in. Okay, So when you think about it this way, when you're running a pension program for workers of a company or a state or a city or anything like that, you're talking about retirement money that has been guaranteed with a dollar figure. Work here for this many years under these circumstances, and when you retire, we'll give you this much money a month until you die. All right? You got that. That's what these types of pensions are. So would you expect, as a person that is being promised that, that the money that they have held in trust, that they're getting a return on so they can pay you, would go into risky mutual funds for aggressive growth stocks? Well, you, you, you probably wouldn't, or you'd think that only a very small portion might go there to help out the overall health of the diversity of the investment. But the majority of that money should be in very stable, very secure investments. The problem is stable and secure investments are now paying 1% to 2%, if you're lucky. And you need 7 to make the math work under the old way that these things were set up in the past as the unions pushed for more and more and more. Well, you know, in the 1980s, I remember people getting six, seven, eight percent on CDs. So it was no problem. Where can you get guaranteed five percent return right now? And they need seven. This whole thing's going to explode. and it's not going to explode everywhere at once. It's going to explode in pockets like little bombs going off everywhere. And every single place it happens, they're going to do the same thing. They're going to run to mommy and daddy federal government and go, please bail us out. And there's a limit to how many they can bail out before they have to say no. Once you bail out one, how do you say no to the next one? This is where we're at. And everybody wants to talk about Chicago because Chicago is an easy dog to kick while it's down. We have problems. in The state of Texas is not actually in that bad shape. Actually, pretty good shape from a standpoint of these these pensions. But the individual municipalities, the cities and the counties, there's a lot of them. Fort Worth is hanging by a thread. Dallas is hanging by a thread. And there's only one place for these municipalities to get money other than dole outs from the Fed. Okay? One place only. Their local constituents. They can't play the game the federal government does and raise income taxes to people in Florida and then they've raised it for everybody, but the people in Florida that are doing well end up paying for the people in Mississippi. You can't do that. If you're you're a a county in Texas or a city in California, the only place you can go as far as a well to get money is the people that live in your county or your city. And the primary revenue that these people raise is through property taxation. And as you increase property taxes, you decrease the number of people that want to freaking live where you're taxing them, so they leave, they move. And this got bad enough in the early 2000s in Dallas that people who could afford their mortgage walked away from their homes because they refused to pay the property taxes any longer. There were letters in the Dallas uh, the Dallas Morning News from people saying City of Dallas I left my house with the keys on it, I'm not paying for it, you can choke on it. This was in the early 2000s when times are relatively good. So what happens if you try to go to that wall to get that money? And what this gentleman who wrote this article is saying, John Malden, Malden Economics, is it's basically an economic civil war you got old teachers and retired firefighters and special interest stories on them, and they want to be paid, and they deserve to be paid, and you agree with it right up until they want to take your taxes that are $3,000 a month for the home you supposedly own and make them six. And even if they do that, all it's going to do is kick the can a little bit, and the pension fund will still fail, but John will get his retirement or most of it thereof. And these retirees, I'm not putting them down. They worked for it. They were made a promise. But I can make you a lot, I can promise you a unicorn, it doesn't mean you're getting one. Most of them, because they felt their pensions were so secure, have not sufficiently invested in their own private pensions, their own private retirement accounts, to have anything to fall back on. They've been depending on Social Security and their government pension for everything. And I'll tell you something else. Many of these positions you think of, these people are working and the taxpayers just paying their bill. In a way, that's true, because all the money that they receive and all compensation they receive comes from taxes, which are theft from people. However, most people think that's okay, and have chosen to voluntarily just support that you know, uh, illegitimate system nonstop. And the people doing the jobs are just doing the jobs and following along, and they're probably doing a reasonable job at what they're paid to do. And what you need to understand is many of them are paying significantly into these pension programs. It's not all just like employer contribution. I talked to one police officer recently. He said he will retire at 26 years. So that's an odd number. Why, why 26? Because that's where my, where my retirement's maxed. He said at 27 years, the amount that I start fund that I fund personally into my pension begins to exceed any appreciable gain by staying another year. Please worked out that math. Nice for him, I imagine. However, that means he's paying money in. So these people that will want their pensions, it's not like they didn't pay anything in. But the reality is we have people retiring in some of these positions in their early 50s. And these pensions, which are fairly significant, are paid for life. And we now have many people living into their 90s. The math doesn't work. The tsunami's coming. Be prepared. I'm not saying if you have a government job, go quit it. I'm saying, I'm not even saying that you won't get your retirement. I don't know which ones will make it and which ones don't. I'm saying a lot of them are going to fail, and you should plan that yours will and be preparing for your retirement as though it's not there. And if it is, it's a great big cherry on top of your Sunday. I hope that makes sense. Again, if you want to read this article, you can read it. There's a link in today's show notes. So um the next one that I have comes in from Jason. Jason says crypto might be on the verge of disrupting the online ad space. There's now a small piece of JavaScript that can be loaded on websites that will donate the user's computing hash power for a brief time to my Monero on behalf of the website owner. Seems like it would be most profitable on sites that have long visit times like forums, etc. There's a couple articles. Uh, let me read the first one to you, and then I'll read kind of this little experiment that somebody did with it, and, and we'll talk about it a bit. It says, it isn't uncommon for web developers to explore ways to monetize their websites and expect to be rewarded for the content they provide. Developers have traditionally relied on delivering content such as advertisements, affiliate links, and premium memberships to create cash flow from their projects, but one crazy idea is about to take digital marketing work by storm. In browser, crypto mining. What is crypto mining? Many cryptocurrencies revolve around the concept of proof of work. This involves computing devices solving complex equations, which allow them to write up to a thing called a blockchain. An immutable ledger that stores crypto transaction data. Crypto mining is usually done by a large server farm or dedicated mining computers that are rewarded for their proof of work with crypto payments. In-browser crypto mining is when people visit a website. Their browser runs a script, which uses their computer's processing power, to mine cryptocurrency for the web developer, the good and the bad. Over recent years, we have seen continuing rise in the use of ad blocking and filtering software. In 2016, it was estimated that nearly 25% of web traffic passed through an ad filter of some description, and this is financially straining the pockets of many web developers. Many large editorials are now defaulting to premium memberships to access content or even completely removing access for users who use ad blockers. Coming as both a web developer and internet user, there's a number of pros and cons to this new technology. Pros. An unobtrusive way for developers to monetize their web pages. Uses unused CPU cycles and computing power that would have otherwise been idle. And real tangible payouts for developers. Cons. Legalities. This is a relatively new technology field and even more so for the laws governing this space. It's already common and necessary for web developers to run JavaScripts on their web pages and that's exactly what crypto mining is. It just seems to rub some people the wrong way when they learn their hardware is being used unbeknownst to them to mine crypto. I would be upset. I I, I had no I would have no problem if somebody made this like click this button when viewing our site to uh, to you know voluntarily donate some of your extra hashing power to mining crypto for us. I may or may not click that button, depending on the site. But somebody doing it and using my resources without my knowledge—that I, I, I would never do this on TSP. Okay, not this way. Uh, JavaScript blocking software similar to anti-blocking software. There's a plethora of software available for blocking scripts running on webpages with hours of CoinHive being discovered on the Pirate Bay website, the CoinHive domain being added to uBlock's origins block list. However, it's unlikely this will be a permanent fix to issues of different miners becoming available on the Internet. Electricity and hardware degradation. However minuscule, the cost of running a CPU is slightly harder than normal. It will be difficult to justify to many users the increased electricity usage and hardware cycles running a browser mining strip will use. While it would add in a relatively tiny workload to the browser's computer, the perception to the end user is that they are paying a price for content may be hard for them to fathom. Uh, You can read the rest of this on how it's implemented if you want to. I want to read this other article uh, that was sent to me as well on this. This is by Maxinance Cornet, whoever that is. Uh, She says uh, she's going to try it out. So I discovered CoinHive three days ago on HN. I decided to give it a try on one of my smaller websites as an experiment. For those who don't know what CoinHive is, this is their intro on their webpage. CoinHive CoinHive offers a JavaScript miner for the Monero blockchain that you can embed in your website. Your users run the miner directly in their browser. And they mine XMR for you in return for ad-free experience, in-game currency, or whatever incentive you can come up with. Basically, your visitors' users mine cryptocurrencies uh, with their CPU for you in exchange for the content you're providing. It's a possible alternative to ads and a better monetization option for, in my opinion. I tried it on a website with approximately a thousand visits a day, with 55 second session duration average last month. The objective was to replace non-intrusive ads I'm currently displaying. Here are the stats that I've gathered: uh, 20, 227 hashes, uh, total paid zero, total pending pay .009 Monero. Um, it seems that I'm constantly between 150 and 450 hashes, which is pretty low. It seems logical, the website having any minute between 5 and 15 visitors, that on average is 20 to 25 hashes per user. So I made a .00947 XMR in 60 hours, a whopping 89 cents. That's 36 cents a day. For this exact website, it's 4 to 5 times less than what it makes with non-intrusive banner and text ads. As stated on CoinHive, the embedded JS miner is well-suited for websites with longer sessions, dura- duration average. The website isn't probably a good use case for CoinHive's embedded JS miner, but from the small sample of data I have, it's not a viable alternative to ads. Hope this helps if you were curious about replacing ads with CoinHive's embedded JavaScript crypto miner. So my takeaway from that is what this would work best for in its current form would be websites with large with long visit times but when the user is not creating multiple impressions. So when a person's on the website a long time, but they're not moving page to page to page to page, because in the world of advertising, conventional advertising, not what I do, by the way, um, you have ad servers, and those ad servers draw uh, advertising media from a centralized location. So when you get a customer, they sign up and they want to buy ads at so much a click or so much an exposure or whatever. And every single time a page loads, that ad server serves up new ads and serves up new ads and serves up new ads from a centralized point using a computing processing technology. And this is how ad workers actually work, by the way. They recognize that's how that content's being delivered, and they shut it off. They block it. Which is why if you go to the survivalpodcast.com even with your ad blockers on, you look over in the right-hand margin, you still see all of those freaking advertisements. Well, how is that? Well, Jack doesn't use an ad server. Jack uses a graphic and a link. Like any other picture that you would see on a website, it just happens to be an ad. So they don't get blocked. Because I have a small number of advertisers that pay a set fee per month. That's the opposite of what 99% of website advertisements do. So, those types of sites that have lots of visitors, but when the person gets to the page, they just kind of stay there, maybe playing a game or something like that. They may not do as well with advertisements as they would do with this, because just the person having it sit there. A news aggregating website that somebody just keeps open in a tab on their browser, they occasionally flip back to to see what's coming up. These are the ones that would work best with this. But then you're sitting, it's sitting there eating away at your CPU. We also know that CPU mining is really kind of falling completely out of practicality with cryptocurrency, uh, as miners have moved mostly to GPUs, and that's are much more powerful. So in the end, this looks like a big nothing burger, but it's not. It's, it's developers trying to figure out how to skin the cat that is the micropayment. See, the thing that cryptocurrencies enable is micropayments and anonymous ones at that, and painless ones at that. A dime here, a dollar there. over a month, maybe it's 10, fifteen bucks that you say, "Hey, I will allocate this to the websites that I use most, whether it's through processing power or some sort of direct payment or something like that." And this is what Brave is trying to do with the Brave browser, where they already have a feature where you can charge up your 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 browser account basically with some cryptocurrency and say, I want to allocate it this way to these sites every month. And whether you use your browser or not, it, it goes to them. And they'll probably come up with some ways that they've they have some plans that, that I think they will eventually skin, um, such as if an advertiser wants to reach people using the brave browser, which has ad blocking uh, users that decide they'll view ads only from the brave network, uh will be given some portion of the ad revenue in return for looking at it. That's, that's another type of thing. So I think that we're just starting to see where this is all going. I don't think this one really works, but things probably will work in this way in the future, and it's an interesting space to watch. What we're moving toward, and I think this is something a lot of people are going to have a problem with when I say it, but I'm going to say it anyway, is what I would call a tithing economy. A tithing economy, so a tithe in church is like you know ten percent. That's where the, the word comes from. So if you go to you know many churches, they'll tell you that it's your duty as a church member to you know to support the church, and that the traditional way to do that is with ten percent of your income. That's a tithe to the church. That's your charity, and some churches are big on trying to make that point. And some are just like give what you can, but the biblical principle is this tithe. Okay, so that, that comes from a tenth. So when I say a tithing, I don't mean a tenth. I mean the concept of giving to someone or to some entity that you believe in. And if you think about it, in a large way, that's how the member support brigade works. So you guys listen to the show, you like the show, you find it valuable in your life, and you think, yeah, Jack's worth 20 cents an episode. So even though I don't have to pay for it, I will choose to give some portion of my hard-earned money back to this source of information that does so much for me with entertainment and education. Got it? All right? And I think what we're trying to do in this world of information, and this is things, things things, like Steam, right? Steam it, where people are writing articles and putting out commentary, and people say, well, I like that, so I'll give you a little bit of Steam, and it's actually a little bit of money. And now they're rolling out a technology, I won't go deep into today, but basically we'll let anybody with a web platform, do what Steam does and create their own token or their own methodology on the Steam blockchain where their users can basically generate cryptocurrency and share it with each other. But it's based on value, the value of what is this information or entertainment worth to me. And we've, we've moved from a manufacturing world into an information world. The, the, the thing that occupies most people for the most time every day anymore is information and even when it's material versus information there's a massive amount of information that goes into purchasing or utilizing or choosing the material what i mean by that is let's say it's 1980 and you decide i want a new fishing rod what were you most likely to do? You might have read Sports field and Field in the Stream and things like that and got some ideas from it, and I'm sure you may have, but the thing you would have probably done is you would have went down to the store and looked at what was available, or you would have talked to your Uncle Bob who's been fishing since fish were invented, and you'd say, hey, what do you recommend available right now? Well, what are you going to do when you want a new fishing rod right now? You might check out TSP because I talk about it some, but you can go on Amazon. You can see thousands and thousands of reviews, and you can go on, you know, Cabela's website, Bass Pro website, and all these other sites and see reviews. You can find articles. You can find blogs. The guy that's that's found the best fishing rod for backpacking for cutthroat trout in Colorado. Now, what's that information worth to you if that's what you're looking for? It's worth something. And I can prove that it's worth something. The fact that you might spend 30 minutes looking for it means that it's worth something. Because you wouldn't spend 30 minutes looking for it if it wasn't worth something. Because 30 minutes of your time is worth something. So we're moving into a world where people providing something that's valuable to others, okay, are starting to say, hey, I... I I don't need it from everybody and all the time. But it might be nice that since I do all of this stuff that you seem to have value in, that maybe once in a while there is a little reciprocity. And cryptocurrency will create the ecosystems by which that will occur because it can do something that regular money cannot. It can create ecosystems of trust. We're two people that don't know each other at all can exchange value on a trust-based system with no concern. And that may be a little bit hard to understand right now. You'll just have to trust me on it. We are only beginning to see the scratches around the edges of what cryptocurrency will do to disrupt the modern media empires. You are going in your lifetime, unless you're really, really old and going to cash your chips in soon, if you're my age or younger, you will witness the destruction of mainstream media. You're already seeing the opening salvos of the war, and they cannot win, because they are grossly outnumbered. But you will see the complete and total collapse of not just the state-based education system, but the state-based media monopoly. I know you think we have freedom of media in America, because your cable you know, pro- platform has 9,000 channels or whatever, But six media companies that own your politicians own 98% of those communication channels. But they don't own the Survival Podcast. They don't own my buddy Vin Armani. And they don't own you unless you let them own you. And the only way you can have people truly engrossing themselves into one thing and becoming that information resource that some number of people choose to rely on is for it to be financially viable. And it will be cryptocurrency. In forms that you cannot even think of yet that will enable that to occur. On cryptocurrency, let's take another one. So one of the things that I've predicted now for about two years of cryptocurrency is that some country somewhere will eventually create a cryptocurrency, and a a, a few tire kickers have been out there, and some of them that may still make good on it. Estonia looks really serious about eventually doing it. Um, Ecuador's talked about it, and they probably should have done it already, and the reality is I could create Jack coin tomorrow now, or or TSP coin or Valcoin tomorrow. And and, and I mean, I could literally just roll it up and do it. And if I I wanted it to be done a little bit more elegantly, eloquently, I could hire a a, a coder to spend maybe a week and a, a thousand bucks and roll out a pretty nice cryptocurrency. I could roll it out as one that's issued or one that's mined. So you might ask, why don't I do it? Because it doesn't provide any real value. I don't see where I would provide value other than enriching myself by doing it. And if I thought I could come up with a cryptocurrency that would really provide a value or create an ecosystem or do something wonderful in my world and in your world, I would do it. But the point is, it's not hard to do. And if a nation does it, well, then it immediately has a credibility. So, Any nation can do this, but no nation has done this. And I'll tell you, it's because it's a scary prospect. But it's going to be like the four-minute mile. There was a time when people didn't think that anybody could run a mile in four minutes. It was a psychological barrier, and when the first person did it, a whole shitload more people did in the next few months. And now the four-minute mile isn't even that big of a deal. We have people now running the mile as quickly as... Three minutes and 43 seconds. And again, it was as soon as somebody broke the four-minute barrier, it just began to to drop further from there. And I'm sure somewhere right now, the belief that the mile will never go below 340 is floating around, and sooner or later, someone will probably do it. And, And that's kind of how this cryptocurrency thing is going to be with national governments. Once one does it, it will unleash a maelstrom, Of people competing, and it's going to be smaller nations, ones that you wouldn't expect that see that this might actually enrich their nation. Because you might imagine if you're a smaller country and you put out a cryptocurrency, and there's all kinds of people investing in it, there might be an awful lot of investors that would say, "Hey, I want to hold some of this country's cryptocurrency." And depending on how you create your currency, whether it's mined or whether it's issued with some sort of cap or attached to some other metric, basically you're selling it into circulation. Nice little business to be in. It's what the banks do, right? Through selling it into debt. But this is a more of a direct sell of the currency into circulation. So who is going to be the one to do it? Well, it looks like now 100% that it's going to be Dubai. Yes, Dubai of the United Arab Emirates. And they're not just saying they're going to do it. They signed a deal to do it. Dubai signs deal to create digital currency EM Cash. This is on ArabianBusiness.com. EM Credit, a subsidiary of Dubai Economy and UK-based Object Tech Group Limited, will work together on the new technology. A partnership has been set up to develop and implement EM Cash, an encrypted digital currency which people can use to pay for various government and non-government services in Dubai. Basically, means it's money, right? If you pay for government and non-government services with something, it's, and the state says it's their currency. It's money in in the state that it's being issued in, according to state news agency WAM, Em Credit a subsidiary of Dubai Economy. And a UK-based Object Tech Group Limited will work together to establish contractless payments. Based on the latest Black Tech blockchain technology, EM Cash will be the digital currency in EM Pay Wallet launched by EM Credit support contractless payments. EM will pay, will allow for UAE residents to make varied payments through the the near-field communications option on their smartphones, or NFC. With EM Cash, EM Pay users will have the option to secure digital currency, and merchants can receive such payments in real time without going through intermediaries. Ali the Deputy Director General of Dubai Economy, said EM Cash would give financial identity to contractless transactions, reinforce Dubai as a competitive business destination, enhance customer happiness, and accelerate Dubai's evolution into a smart economy. A digital currency has varied advantages, faster processing, improved delivery time, and less complexity and cost. It will change the way people live and do business in Dubai and make a giant leap for the city in harnessing game-changing innovations and improve the ease of business and quality of life. We are delighted to have Object Tech as our partner in this initiative and the Dubai Economy Accelerators Program. Obtaining the approval of other UAE authorities will be considered if required, he added. Muna Al-Qasab, CEO of EM Credit Limited, added that EM Cash also reduces fraud as well as inflation, since so the currency is issued in real time based on actual demand. In other words, we don't have a whole bunch of pesky money floating around out there that nobody really wants. Um, what does this mean? For Bitcoin and things like that, other than being some vindication that, yes, our idea is better than yours, not much, not much. See, there's it, a lot of people have been lauding the day that the state comes out with a cryptocurrency. It, to, to me, it's, it's a big, I told you so, but it's also a big old, so what? In fact, it's actually a negative thing for Liberty because you know when the state comes up with a cryptocurrency, they are going to be able to track everything that you do with it. And they will know when John sends Tom five bucks for a basket of apples if they choose to use it that way. But that's why John and Tom should use Zcash which is completely anonymous, or Dash, which can be completely anonymous, or even Bitcoin, which while not completely anonymous, I mean, you you got a lot of work to do to track down the five bucks that John gave Tom for a basket of apples. You, You see what I'm saying. But this is a dream for countries. They just don't know what to do with it. They're afraid if they let that genie out of the bottle, they then have to compete with the market that is the cryptocurrency market. See, one of the things the United States can say right now is, well, we, w- the dollar is the dollar. It's not the crypto dollar. That's why you should keep your money in dollars. It's not this phony baloney hoodoo voodoo, even though it's completely phony baloney hoodoo voodoo, right? But they, they, the average person doesn't understand that. You know the average person does not understand how a dollar is created, does not understand where it comes from. And even a lot of people that think they do, are like, it's fiat currency. No, it's not dummy. Our currency is not fiat It's debt-backed. It's worse. On one level, it's fiat because the government has declared it as such. But it's backed by debt. A fiat currency is where the government says, we're going to print $1 trillion this year, fire up the printer, print it, done. And they don't owe anybody shit. It's just currency that they put into circulation through various governmental programs. That's a fiat currency. So most of you think that it's a fiat currency. Don't even understand it yourselves. And you know more than the average idiot. So the average idiot looks at the dollar and says, or, or the, the, the yen, or the yuan, or whatever, right? Uh, the euro, it doesn't matter what it is. The Australian dollar, the Canadian dollar, the peso, the ruble, doesn't matter what it is. It's different than cryptocurrency. When they go to cryptocurrency, and my friends, they will, they can no longer make that claim. All they can say then is, but it's backed by the full faith and credit of UAE, uh, United States of America, Canada. Uh, Sheboyganville, whatever the hell it is. Okay? But what they'll have to do then is explain to you why you would use their currency versus Bitcoin, where the rules of Bitcoin are predisposed to protect the wealth of the individual. And I guarantee you, Amero coin or whatever the hell they call it, US coin, what have you, will be designed specifically to preserve the wealth of the state. And that's where we're headed. But it does look like Dubai will be the first official government cryptocurrency that they'll beat everybody else to the punch. My prediction, once there's one within a year of that date, so not the same year, could happen in December, and then there's only a month left. Within a year of that date, there will be a dozen. It will be just like breaking the four-minute mile. Let's take another one. What I have for you next is something that I chose to talk about today, even though I didn't get any real feedback on it. Now, I've I've seen some scuttlebutt back and forth from people on Facebook about it, um, but no one's emailed me about this for a feedback show. And I'm referring to it as the biggest news story that you won't hear anything about. And, and, And it's not that there's nothing in mainstream media. This is actually on the New York Times. And to be fair to the New York Slimes, I mean Times, yeah, the New York Slimes has one of the best articles about what was going on and the truth about it, but it's probably an article that no one's gonna read. Or no, when I say no one, it doesn't mean you won't read it. You, you're gonna hear it today, right now, whether you want to or not. Uh, but I mean, when I say no one, you know what I mean. Like the, the masses will not read this and have no idea what's going on. So before I read the article for you, let me just give you a little bit of background. Catalonia is a, a region of Spain. Think of it like a state. Now, of course, Spain is a much smaller country than the United States, and Caledonia, Catalonia is, oh, Caledonia, Catalonia is much smaller than, than most U.S. states. Um, but think of it like a state, well, if we we're comparing it to something like the United States of America, you would think of it as something like Florida would actually be a good analog. Because Florida's some valuable real estate now, isn't it? And uh, Catalonia includes Barcelona. Right? so when you think of like going on vacation to Spain, the, if you're if you're like me, the first place you think of is probably not Madrid but Barcelona. Right, so it's it's a, a valuable hunk of real estate. Well, Catalonia has felt. You tell me if there's any states that match this description in the United States that they're being raped in the butt constantly by the federal government, their federal government. They're having their wealth extracted and redistributed to the west of the rest of the country, and they're kind of fed up with it. Does that sound like any state you can think of in the United States of America? All right? And, and they're kind of fed up with it. And as, as European politics go, the people in the majority government within this region of uh, Catalonia is quite conservative, and they have, over time, moved more and more toward a position that maybe Catalonia should be an independent nation. They can just tell the, the, the central government of Spain to F off kindly elsewhere, do whatever you want, but we're out. And that has all moved toward a referendum to vote on whether or not Catalonia should be an independent nation. Now, let me explain what that means. That means they're going to have a vote now what happens after that vote is highly debatable? Because you can have I can organize a vote right now if I want to that says Texas should be an independent state. And I can get enough backing, let's say from the Texas state legislature under the Texas independent movement, and we could have a vote and we could vote for Texas to be independent. It doesn't mean that it will happen. There's all types of mechanisms between the state government and the federal government after that that will take place. The, the Supreme Court of the United States will have things to say about it. But you, you would think, if we were going to have that vote here in Texas, that the federal government wouldn't send in federal troops to prevent the vote itself. Especially if they've already said that the vote is unconstitutional it won't be honored. Okay. With that in mind, let me read to you one of the best pieces of journalism to come out of the New York Slimes, I mean Times, in a long time. Catalonia's independence vote descends into chaos and clashes. Barcelona, Spain, Catalonia's defiant attempt to stage an independence referendum descended into chaos Sunday, with hundreds injured in clashes with police in one of the gravest tests of Spain's democracy since the end of the Franco dictatorship of the 1970s. National police officers in riot gear, sent by the central government in Madrid from other parts of Spain, used rubber bullets and truncheons. In some places, they fanned out across Catalonia to rest- to retrieve northeastern the uh, the restrict uh, anyway the northeastern region to shut down polling stations and seize ballot boxes. Okay, just so you get this, the people of Catalonia are not rioting. They're not protesting. They're not tearing shit up. They're voting. And they sent the federal thugs in to prevent them from voting on this referendum and seize the ballot boxes. All right? The clashes quickly spoiled what had been a festive, if expectant, atmosphere among voters, many of whom had camped inside polling stations and stayed late into Sunday night, fearful the officers might seize the ballot boxes. Turns out those fears were kind of, yeah, okay. By the day's end, both sides were claiming victory. Voting went ahead in many towns and cities with men and women, young and old, signing and chanting, singing and chanting as they lined up for hours to cast ballots. Just after midnight, the Catalan government said the referendum had been approved by 90% of 2.3 million voters. Those figures could not be independently confirmed. The Spanish government declared the referendum had been disrupted. It's because they disrupted it. God, seeing like a state, man. You got to read the book, okay? This is just classic. That this is a, the state sees itself as noble even when it's scum, man. Okay, more than 750 people were injured in the crackdown. Down Catalan officials said, while dozens of Spanish police officers were hurt, according to Spain's Interior Ministry, the day's events left nothing clear except the clashes over the status of the region. Spain's economic powerhouse, where yearnings for a separate nation have ebbed and flowed for generations, have left supporters on both sides more hardened and polarized than before. The Madrid government, with the backing of Spanish courts, had declared the referendum unconstitutional and ordered the vote be suspended. You got that. You've, they, they've ruled the vote unconstitutional before it happened and said you're not allowed to run the vote. Really get that in your head. But that did not stop Catalans from gathering before sunrise on Sunday, massing on rain-slick streets across the region. In other words, when you're, when you're trying to declare independence, you don't not do it because the people you're declaring independence f- from say you're not allowed to. Right? Again, seeing like a state. I mean, the blindness here. Spain has shown us today its ugliest and darkest face. That which we really thought had disappeared 40 years ago, said Marco Pupillo, 54. You simply can't use violence against people who just want to vote. (laughs) That's what the state is there, Marco. The state is violence. Despite the police threat, Mr. Pupillo, who uses a wheelchair, said he went to vote to make sure this was our feast of democracy, not our humiliation at the hands of a Spanish state that believes in repression. Voters like him made a turnout an extraordinary show of determination in the face of a steady drumbeat of threats from Madrid. Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy, at the at the news, at a news conference Sunday evening, characterized the police actions as a proper and measured response to the acts of secessionists. We did what we had to do, he said. Proponents of the referendum immediately pointed to the heavy use of police force as a blight on not only Mr. Rajoy's conservative government, but also on Spain's still relatively young democracy. The image of the Spanish state has reached levels of shame that will stay with them forever, the leader of Catalonia... Uh, told a crowd in the town of St. Julia de Ramis in the scene of the, of the scene of the clashes. Today, the Spanish state has lost a lot more than it already lost. And Catalan citizens have won a lot more than they had won until now, he said. He and other Catalan authorities maintained that balloting had proceeded in the most of the polling stations and seemed determined to use the vote as further evidence of legitimacy of their claim for a separate nation. The Catalan vote had been watched with rising trepidation and no sign of support by a European Union wary of, wary of stoking forces of fragmentation already tugging at the block. And many were many many member states where populist and nationalist parties have surged and. Re- recent election. See, the EU is, is shit, looks like a cat shit in a razor blade right now. That's what the EU looks like. Because a lot of the nations, not just with separatist movements inside the nation of itself, but countries are going, I don't know that we really need to do this EU thing anymore. It, you know, Brexit was the kind of the first opening shot. There's a lot of countries, I like, like, what do we get for this? Other than a bunch of rules and regulations that we don't want, and more socialism than even we want here in Europe. Right. Okay. Back to the the uh, the uh, article. Nationalism in Spain, a country with a long, painful 20th century history that included a civil war and fascism, has been all but dormant since the coming of democracy after the death of dictator General Francisco Franco in 75. There are already signs that Catalonia's threat to fracture the country is changing that. Because of the tension, Sunday, FC FC Barcelona Soccer Club played a match behind closed doors in its Camp Nou Stadium where the opposing Spanish team came with special uniforms emblazoned with the Spanish flag. Something unusual here. Yet none of the tensions or lack of support, Scotland and Venezuela were among the few backers of the referendum. Those are strange bedfellows, are they not? Scotland and Venezuela? That should tell you something about what's really at stake here. There There could be no two countries... More different in what they want from the concept of being left alone than Scotland and Venezuela, but the commonality is to be left alone to run their own lives okay has dimmed aspirations for independence in Catalonia, a prosperous region with distinctive language history and culture. those separatist passions rose in recent years as Catalans complained that Madrid was unfairly siphoning off their wealth and denying them the right to choose their own political destiny. Spanish authorities accuse separatist government of irresponsibly encouraging voters to violate Spanish law. Okay, look, you can read, this is a very long article. You can read the rest of it if you want to. But what happened here is that the Catalan government said, we're going to have a vote. It's our business, it's our region. We're going to vote as a region on whether we wish to remain part of Spain or we wish to go our own separate ways. And the Spanish government says you can't do that. And the Catalan government said, listen, I don't think we were clear. We weren't asking you. We were telling you. And frankly, the only reason we were telling you is because we have to tell the people so they'll show up. We really don't give a shit what your opinion is of this. But if we want to run an election or a referendum or a vote in our region, I want, you to, I want you to change the wording a little bit so that it makes sense to you. If we in Florida want to run a a, a referendum on the ballot in Florida to hear the opinion of our citizens as whether or not Florida should remain part of the United States, we will do that and the chips will fall as they may. And then Washington says, no you won't, it's illegal. And, And Washington appeals to the Supreme Court that says it's unconstitutional. Well, that means the court is is prejudging the result as being unconstitutional. The action itself is an independent state, in our instance, I guess, a province in Spain, choosing to run an election, and when the, when that, that independent when Florida goes through with the election. They send in federal authorities and start kicking the shit out of people and beating the shit out of people and go into the polling places and grab the ballot boxes and take them away. And I want to read, I talked about seeing like a state. I I wanted to read one more part of this to show you the mindset of the state. Catalan officials instead re- relied on privately printed ballots. Let me, let me go like a little further, actually, so this all makes sense. As Sunday approached, the Madrid government tried everything it could to thwart the referendum, d- disabling the Internet, confiscating ballots, detaining some officials, and threatening more with prosecution. So let's take this to Florida. They go into Florida, and they grab some of like the state representatives and town councilmen and put them in jail temporarily and detain them, and say, you, you can't be doing this. They grab election officials within the state of Florida that, say, uh, manage the polls and stuff like that. They grab the ballots. They turn off the Internet in Florida. See, I know you think, like, but this didn't happen in Florida. See, but it's real to you when I say Florida. When I say Catalonia, you're like, I don't understand. It, it's somewhere over there. These are real people. They, they go in and they turned off the Internet. They confiscate the ballots. They detain the officials. And they threaten scores more of state officials. If you let this happen, we will prosecute you under federal law. But Florida says we're going to do it anyway. So the vote takes place anyway in an atmosphere of cat and mouse. In improvised conditions, with a disputed census used as a voting list, Catalan officials instead relied on privately printed ballots and change the voting rules an hour before the polls were scheduled to open to allow voters to cast a ballot in any poll station without using an envelope and whether registered there or not. Vote once, but you can vote anywhere, and we'll print our own ballots since they took away the official ones. We'll just print new ones. Here you go. We're going to do this no matter what. (laughs) So, Enric Milio... The Spanish government's representative in Catalonia said the last-minute change turned what was already an illegal referendum into a, quote, joke. Mr. Emilio deplored the fact that national police were forced to take over from Catalan police officers who failed to stop the voting We're being forced to do what we didn't want to do, he said. Seemed like a state. Those jerks, those police officers in Catalonia... They were told to stop this election from happening, or this referendum vote from happening. And you know what? The bastards didn't do their job, and they made us go there and step on the throat of their own people, even though we didn't want to do it. Now, why do you think you're not hearing about this on your TV set and it isn't because of the mass shooting that just happened. Yes, that will dominate the airwaves. But if it hadn't, you would not hear this broken down the way that I'm doing it for you here. Even though the New York Times broke it down, they did it because they know no one will give a damn and no one will read it. And if they're ever called, they like, say, well, we covered it. We even covered it. They covered it well. Why do you think you're not hearing this? Because what's the real point here? What's the real point here? The point is that Spain knew which way the wind was blowing, and they knew that this vote would come out very, very much in favor of independence. If they felt that if they let the vote go forward, and they were going to get an 80% vote to stay as part of Spain, they would have done nothing. They wouldn't have sent people out to seize seize ballot boxes, to kick the doors to polling places in, or to bolt them shut so people couldn't get in. Some of the other shit you'll learn about if you read the rest of this article. They did it because they knew they were going to lose. And what they would say is, we didn't want to take this unconstitutional action and give it legitimacy. Oh, the word legitimacy comes into play here. But we need a prefix for it. Because the right word is illegitimacy. Illegitimacy is what they were concerned about. The illegitimacy of their own authority. See... A government serves at the pleasure of its people, not the other way around. And if the majority—and I don't mean fifty-one percent here—and I'm going to give it to you—that probably since it was elite, you know, like they said you're not supposed to do it, the people that would have more likely voted no probably weren't as motivated to go out there and get kicked in the face by a cop. But I, I would say if you ran, if they had been left alone to run this thing on their own, they probably would have been like an eighty percent instead of a ninety percent vote to leave. That means that those people no longer wish you to serve at their pleasure, they wish to serve their own pleasure, and you can go F off elsewhere. And, and, and the, the reason that the governments of the world wouldn't like this is it shows the truth in that the state only has as much legitimacy as the members of that state as citizens choose to allow it to have. It can become a very small influence, it can be a great big influence, or it can be written off and sent packing. And that's a very dangerous message if you're the state, isn't it? So what do you say? It's, it's a shame. This was a joke. Like they Look at the way they did this. This was a joke. No, asshat. It wasn't a joke. You guys did everything you could to stop it. You stole their ballots. You stole their voter rolls. You tried to bolt with, like, lag bolt the door shut so people couldn't get in to vote. You went into the streets and fired rubber bullets at people because they were checking a box on a piece of paper. Please let that sink in. And your American news media has said the square root of F all about this and what it really means on a global scale. Because it just might start those people out in California that want California independence to think, wait a minute, maybe this could be a real thing. And if nothing else, you may see a change in the dynamics how state and national politics work with a resurgence in state autonomy, lowercase s, the state of Florida, the state of Texas, the state of California, pushing further back on a federal government. This is the biggest story that's not being covered. And the question is now, what is going to happen? Because what Spain should have done was allowed the election, or the it's really not an election, a referendum vote to go forward, and then dealt with the consequences, including our court says your vote is not constitutional. Not you can't do it. The state sent thugs dressed in riot gear, with rubber bullets and clubs and tear gas to prevent people from marking an X in a box on a sheet of paper. And if you don't think it can happen here, you're not paying attention. And that's why it's not in your news media. But now at least you know. I encourage you to look further into this issue. Well, that's some tough stuff we've been through today. So let's finish up with something a little bit more fun. This comes from Mike. Mike says, what can you do with herbs and plants now that the growing season is over? Details. Grew herbs for the first time this year, and I'm wondering if they will last over the winter outside. Do I need to harvest all or some of them or bring them indoors? The second part of this question is, when harvesting herbs, what's the best way to use them? Fresh, dry, ground up? I'm in East Tennessee, Zone 7A. Thanks, Jack. Love the show. Longtime listener. First-time questioner. All right. So, Mike. Here's the deal: uh, some herbs will overwinter in zone seven a, and but they would probably be more likely to overwinter in the ground uh, than they would in a pot. Some herbs will not. Examples are: if you had thyme, uh, thyme, I'm sorry, thyme growing in the ground and you mulched over it heavily, it probably would make it through your winters. Peppermint would make it through your winters and come back next year. Most perennial herbs will make it through your winter. They may or may not make it in a pot if left outside. Annual herbs like basil and tender perennial herbs will not make it through your winter, and they will die. So you have to make this decision on an individual basis with your herbs. Uh, there is no real point to bringing basil indoors, let's say, to get through the winter because at some point the plant is going to go heavily to seed and it's going to continue complete its life cycle and it's, it's it's not going to make it. If you happen to find that one of the herbs that you're growing is a perennial, but a tender perennial that won't overwinter, then that would be something that you could consider bringing inside next to a sunny window. As far as harvesting, my belief is that the highest juice of herbs are fresh. I prefer to use fresh over dried herbs every time I have the opportunity, but I use dried a lot because it's convenient. The best way to harvest is to take what you need for what you're doing as you need it fresh. Uh, Basil, oregano. Oregano is another example of perennial. So oregano would probably overwinter where you are, even outdoors. I don't know if it will pull it off in a pot and to use it as you need it, uh, based on your part. There's one exception to this, and this is a perennial that will survive your winters, no problem, and that's rosemary. Uh, I think rosemary, to me, is the one herb that I would rather use dried than fresh. I, I like to just, you know, basically I, I trim from the rosemary bush as much as I want to, to to harvest. I tie it up with a string in a bundle, and I hang it in a nice dry Air moving warm area. My outbuildings happen to work good for that. Uh, before it gets really cold out and you have the doors open up on a greenhouse and the air's moving through it, that's another good place to dry herbs. I let them dry and then I just run my fingers, you know, against the grain of the needles, uh, down the stem and put them into a jar. And I pretty much do the same thing with just about any other herb. Tie it up in bundles, let it dry, knock the leaves off the stem, put it into a jar, keep it cool and dry, and it will store for a very, very long period of time. So that's that's how you would handle that. But again, I prefer to use them fresh. With your perennial herbs, if you have them in pots, it's a really great opportunity to bring them indoors. And I think one of the things that many people in uh, somewhat southern climates like you live in fail to realize is that there's a lot of time during the winter that it's not freezing out. In fact, it's quite pleasant. You know, you'll have weeks that go by sometimes in the south in midwinter where your overnight lows are in the high 40s, but your daytime temperatures are in the 70s. And if you're not going to have a frost, it's really easy to take those pots back outside. So I, I am of the opinion of things that are potted that I want to get through the winter. I bring them in when a freeze is approaching, and I put them back out on the porch or what have you otherwise. And that's kind of what I would advise you to do there. There's also some plants that we think of as annuals that aren't herbs, but we can do something similar with. One is peppers. Most people don't realize, a pepper is really not a herbaceous plant, uh, the way that something like a tomato is. A tomato is an herbaceous vining plant. A pepper... It's a shrub, it's a bush, and I've I've had some that I've grown. I have video on my channel, my YouTube channel, of jalapeno pepper plants that are six feet tall in one season. By the way, that was the power of hugel culture and the hugel beds that I built in Arkansas. Six foot tall jalapeno bush, shrub, and they are perennials. Peppers are perennials. Why do they die? Because they can't handle the frost. But if you go down into parts of Mexico, et cetera, there are wild pepper bushes that grow. They're a short-lived perennial. They will live on average somewhere between four and ten years. And with certain care, some of them can live longer. What does this mean? This means that if you have some really nice pepper plants in your garden, what you can do is before the first frost, you can dig them up, put them in a a pot, and prune them, prune the shit out of them, prune them down a lot so they get real bushy. And you can bring them inside and make sure they get light and sun and water and nutrient, and they'll get through your winter. Now, they probably won't produce a lot for you unless you have good artificial lighting or you have, you know, basically a greenhouse attached to your house or something like that. But they'll live. And what does that mean? That means when spring comes and you put them back outside, you're starting with a one-year-old pepper bush that is going to go like gangbusters in its second year compared to that little bitty plant that you started from a seed eight weeks ago. So that's another thing to consider. Great question, Mike. I appreciate it. Uh, With that, um, I wanted to uh, remind you guys one of the ways you can support us is by doing your online shopping through a little website called tspaz.com. All you got to do is go to tspaz.com, tspaz.com. When you get there, you can see the items of the day that are on the deals of the day from Amazon. You can do your shopping on Amazon from there, and anything you buy at that point will help support the Survival Podcast. The other thing you can see is our reviews, because we do review a lot of items on Amazon, and today I have a great review for you with a bonus a recipe, and it might make you hungry. So if you haven't eaten yet today, here is my warning before you hear the item of the day. So Jason from PA, who's been a long-term community member of the Survival Podcast, asked me in a comments recently about a fish scaler. Now everybody knows you can scale fish with a spoon, you can do it with a butter knife. They have those cheap, cheesy looking scalers. I've seen people use an apple coring tool, all different types of things. But the one that I rely on is a Japanese-made fish scaler, and the head is made of brass, the handle is wooden, and it's made by a company called Yamasho, Y-A-M-A-S-H-O, and it looks like something that was probably built 100 years ago or maybe 500 years ago, and it probably was. Um, it is an unfinished handle that gives you the ability to kind of finish the handle yourself. Real simple, little bit of uh, stain. I did mine with just some brown shoe polish and uh, some uh, uh, deer tallow. Rendered deer tallow as a sealer. It came out pretty cool looking. Anyway, um, it's it's a brass tool for scaling fish. It's pretty simple. It's about ten bucks. Four point eight out of five stars with over hundred reviews on Amazon. You check the fake spot grade and the, the product and the company both get an A. So there's no fake reviews in there. That's that's really awesome. And the reason you go Japanese with anything when it comes to fish, did you know that almost one in ten fish eaten in the world, eaten in the world, are eaten in Japan, one in ten fish eaten in the world are eaten in Japan. Japan makes up 1.6% of the global population, but they eat 10% of the fish. They know what they're doing. Um, but I'll tell you what, I love this question because it lets me talk a little bit about cooking. And in America, we've come to like this obsession with everything being skinless and boneless. Chicken, fish, you name it. We debone and de-skin every freaking thing. And then we also tend to then take it and deep fry it. So we, we take skin off because we think it's healthier off a of chicken, and then we roll it up into a nugget and fry it. Uh, fish, I don't think anybody's really worried that the fish skin is not healthy, but it's something we've kind of gotten in our head is not good to eat. If you go to Japan, and to be fair, China, Thailand, etc., most fish are cooked whole, bone-in, Head on, skin on. You have to leave the head on if you want. Don't want to. I'll tell you why in a second why you might want to. Uh, but they're, they're bone and skin. Like they know the flavors there. So let me give you this really simple recipe. Then you'd want to be able to scale your fish for. This is for a, a seared fish. Works well with any fish, but it's really outstanding with smaller panfish like bluegill and perch. Prepare the fish, you scale it, then you gut it. You can leave the head on or you can cut it off. The choice is yours. Then you take a very sharp knife and you score the skin on both sides. You cut little cuts, three or four cuts, just through the skin, just into the flesh, not down to the bone, though, on both sides of the fish. Now we're going to make a rub. Here, and I have links to all of the stuff in the ingredients in the review today. You're going to use two tablespoons of Korean fermented chili paste. That's also known as gochigan, okay? Don't worry about how to spell it. Just go to the site, teespaz.com, look up the most recent reviews, and you can see what Gochigan is. And it is a fermented red chili paste made in Korea. Uh, two tablespoons of that, one tablespoon of ginger paste, or you can use minced fresh ginger. One tablespoon of lemongrass paste. I have a link for that, but the produce section of your supermarket probably has some tube with with, with lemongrass paste in it. Go get that. It's cheaper. It's very expensive online. It takes a long time to deliver. It's not as popular in the U.S. as it is in the U.K., and the only company selling it online on Amazon is out of the U.K., and it takes like eight days to get it. So get that at your local store, but I put a link so you can see what I'm talking about. A tablespoon of garlic paste or freshly minced garlic. But I like paste for this, so if you're going to mince your own ginger and garlic, the best thing to do is get like a a zesting grater and and do it on that so it gets really, really fine so you can work it into the flesh of the fish. Then you need about a tablespoon of your choice of oil. I like peanut oil for for doing this personally. And a tablespoon of fish sauce. And I use 40-degree red boat fish sauce. It's the only thing I'll buy. There's a link for that. And a good few grinds of black pepper. Coarsely ground back pepper. You mix that all up, the 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 oil will thin it out a little bit. If it needs to be a little thinner so it'll work into the flesh a little bit more, add a little bit more oil. I just do this by eye. Mix it up, roll it all, rub it all over the fish, the outside, in the cavity, everywhere. Put it in the refrigerator and leave it alone. Best thing to do, make this stuff in the morning, rub your fish with it, go to work, go to school, do whatever you're gonna do. Come home and cook that fish that night. That gives it a good 8-10 hours to have that stuff absorb into the skin. When you cook the fish, cook it in hot oil, like with a cast iron skillet or a good carbon steel pan, something like that. I like to put enough oil that when you lay the fish down, about a third of the fish's width is in oil. So you're actually like pan frying it here, not just searing it. And you're going to fry it at a hot temperature until the skin crisps and those little scoring marks open up. And it smells really wonderful, and when you... Push it with a fork, the flesh will flake off of the, of the bones. The reason you might want to leave the head, when you go to eat this thing, you pull the, the dorsal fin out of the back and the part without the, uh, the bones, you, you just eat that like a potato chip. You eat the tail like a potato chip, it's so freaking good. You throw the little bones away, the bones on that dorsal fin are just pull straight out. And then you take a fork and you just flake it. You just pull it right off where that opening is. The meat comes right off the fish off of where the ribs, you don't, have, you don't have any waste. All the meat just comes off the fish beautifully. And if you do it off of one side like that, if you leave the head on the fish, you grab the head of the fish and you lift it up, and it just pulls the whole skeleton out whole. And it looks like from Tom and Jerry, when Tom the cat was pulling like the, 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 the naked bones of the fish out of the, out of the garbage, that's what it looks like. And they eat the other side. And that skin is so crispy, and that chili paste, and that ginger, and that garlic. Do that with some uh, sautéed vegetables. I give the whole breakdown in the review... This stuff is fantastic, and you can make it out of those little bluegills that are at Little Pond at that apartment complex down the road. And it's a better meal than anything you buy. I always garnish this. I like to garnish it with thinly sliced chili peppers, cilantro, Thai basil, and green onion. And when you're doing your your Thai basil for thinly sliced, take your leaves, lay them in a stack, roll them up like a cigarette, and slice them really, really thin like ribbons. And sprinkle that on top of your, your fish. Enjoy it. A little chili oil if you want to go a little bit more. Fantastic. And it all starts with this $10 scaler. Stop throwing the skin away and stop dipping every piece of fish in into beer batter and cornmeal. All right? Anyway, again, if you want to help support the show, tspaz.com will allow you to do that. That brings us to our song of the day. The song of the day today is whatever happened to peace on earth with Willie Nelson. And it's very much in opposition to the Iraq war. Basically, the belief that maybe we should be minding our own business. Um, But the bigger question here is, whatever happened to the desire for peace on earth? And he he talks about in this song how like you probably won't hear it on your radio. You you might imagine why you wouldn't. But what amazes me, again, the synchronicity of having John uh, Adam pick these songs out, I couldn't pick a better song than this for today with the shooting. Whatever happened to peace on earth? whatever happened to people just striving to do the best they can for themselves and, and not harming other people. It's really a fantastic song and it's not I wouldn't say it's musically it's not Willie really at his best. It's more of just kind of a little bit of strumming of guitar and more talk in the words than singing the words. But it really is one of those songs that will really make you think. And what it makes me think about is our our zeal for war after so many instances that we probably should have stayed out of war, specifically the Vietnam War. And it gives me the opportunity to to let you guys know about something I've been watching and i found fascinating, very well done. And, and I think I have it all on DVR, and I want to go back to the beginning and watch the whole thing straight through without missing any episodes. But I was watching it in the evenings while I was on vacation with my wife, PBS has a 10, I think it's a 10 part film series on the Vietnam War. It starts off with the very beginning of U.S. involvement in Vietnam, and it ends with the fall of Saigon after U.S. withdrawal. It is fantastically done. Coming from from PBS, I would expect it to just basically, you know, kick Nixon in the nuts, but like apologize for the Democrats that touched the Vietnam War. They don't. They tell the truth, and the truth is that every American president that touched Vietnam lied about it. Every American president that touched Vietnam knew it was a disaster. Every one of them knew that it was something that was going to turn into a disaster and cost American lives, and we were not going to change the outcome, and they did it anyway. And there's tremendous lessons, and I love the perspective given from the South Vietnamese soldiers who fought alongside our own, the Viet Cong who fought for what they perceived as independence, and the North Vietnamese regular uh, military and citizens and what they thought about it. And how the whole thing fell apart after they finally won. How communism basically failed in Vietnam. And how normalization with the United States relations was actually architected and done by the Vietnamese themselves. It is is fantastically done. And it is a sobering reminder of the mistakes of getting into wars that we don't belong in. I invite you to take a look at it and think about your children and your grandchildren whenever a politician tells you that we need to go to war with yet another country who's not actually done anything to harm us. With that this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher so even if there's things going on
0: in the world babies dying mothers crying How much all is one human life worth? And what happened to peace on earth? We believe everything that they tell us. They're going to kill us, so we got to kill them first. But I remember a commandment, thou shalt not kill. And how much is a soldier's life worth? And what happened to peace on earth? Bewildered, hurt, still believing Everything we've been told from our birth Hell, they won't lie to me Not on my own damn TV But how much is a liar's word worth And whatever happened to peace on earth So I guess it's just due unto others Before they can do it to you Let's just kill them all and let God sort them out Is this what God wants us to do? And the bewildered herd still believing Everything we've been told from our birth Hell, they won't lie to me Not on my own damn TV But how much is a liar's word worth? And whatever happened to peace on earth you probably won't hear this on your radio Probably not on your local TV But if there's a time and you're ever inclined You can always hear it from me But how much is a picker's word worth And what happened to peace on earth But don't confuse caring for weakness you can't put that label on me The truth is my weapon of mass protection And I believe that truth sets you free And the bewildered herd still believe in. Everything we've been told from our birth Hell, they won't lie to me Not on my own damn TV But how much is a liar's word worth? And what happened to peace on earth?